we made this. Welcome everyone to a podcast devoted to the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. I'm Sean Wilson. And in our latest episode of Between the Notes, we will be presenting music from and speaking with composer Bear McCreary. Plus, we will talk our top five monster movie scores each. This is a monster movie special focusing on Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which has just been released this last week so uh we're going um we're going into te- scary territory ashore we, we did musicals before which was all nice and happy and now we're gonna roar we're gonna let the beast out not that sounds really bad doesn't it <laughs> this is the kind of music that makes you kind of l- look out of your window and cower in fear at like what is that it's godzilla <laughs> <laughs> this is what we want. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I did wonder if you were do, going to do an, do an Irish accent for a minute then. Because you went, what? Or look, look out the window, it's Godzilla. <laughs> now that, I will, actually, I was going to say I want to see an Irish monster movie, but there was one, wasn't there, called Wreckers? Wasn't there? We, we, I don't think that? either of us have included the soundtrack for that on our list, but it was basically, it's a brilliant, brilliant concept, which is that a group of people in a small Irish village have to get absolutely bladdered in order to be impervious to, to the monsters. <laughs> it's a great little film. It's really fun. It's very Irish, but it's, it's genius. Yeah, that is such an Irish take, isn't it, on, it on is. a monster movie film? <laughs> but it just Brilliant. proves how many different variations on the monster movie there are, doesn't it? Which is what obviously what we're talking about. Yeah. We, need, we need to send an email to Toho Studios to do um, Godzilla in Donegal. <laughs> I think I'd, I'd, I'd pay for that. Make it, make that. it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> make it happen, guys. So we're gonna we are gonna talk about Bear McCreary's score from Godzilla. Sean, you spoke to um, Bear about the film, uh, which we're gonna intersperse some of the uh, discussion um, with Bear McCreary through this podcast. But what we thought we'd start and do is actually um, discuss the first three of our choices for the five our five favorite monster movie soundtracks so that, that that that's that's the that's the hook essentially we've been obviously with monster movies there is there's a fairly broad field you know you can you don't just have to cover things like a godzilla you know or or anything like that so we've kind of gone fairly diverse i think into diff, some different genres and some different kind of um, takes on the monster movie because it is quite varied so i think we've come up with some interesting choices here so Sean, why don't you kick us off with your number five choice for your favourite monster movie score? So I've gone for The Descent by uh, David Julian, who is a composer who's unfortunately slipped off the radar in recent years. He started off being affiliated with the early films of Christopher Nolan in uh, films like the, um, Memento, Insomnia and The Prestige. Um, and then Nolan moved over to um, Hans Zimmer. I actually think this is David Julian's best score by 
quite some distance actually and it's one of my favorite british horror films and one of my favorite monster movies of all time i imagine um many people are already familiar with the concept of the descent which is directed by um neil marshall who did the recent hellboy movie and he also did some episodes of game of thrones as well as well as um dog soldiers uh the, the idea is that a group of women cavers, one of whom, Sarah, played by Shauna MacDonald, is grappling with a horrendous family tragedy in which she lost her daughter and her husband in a car accident, decides to sort of cement their bond and comes to terms with the past by going on a caving expedition in the wilds of America. They go everything starts to go horribly wrong they end up being caved in and then there are monsters known as the crawlers down there with them like flesh-eating hideous golem style monsters and what the movie does brilliantly is it balances human psychological terror with very very grisly full-on like 18 rated like monster movie gore and it's it's genuinely scary and it's genuinely a brilliant film it was made i think for about four million pounds it looks like it costs 20 million pounds the cinematography and the direction and the conviction of the acting from everyone involved is superb and the score is is really really great again given how low budget the movie is the score is incredibly sophisticated and rich in its soundscape and what david julian does is somewhat um it's interesting that the movie is called The Descent about how the environment constricts and yet what he does is he he sort of inverts that and he has this incredibly sort of very, very sad, very melancholy theme for the central character of um, Sarah, which kind of builds in this kind of melancholic weight, particularly towards the end. I mean, the end, you've got this incredibly kind of ironic um, and very, very heartbreaking, really, twist you know, i won't give away what it is but the music builds to this kind of incredibly tragic weight which really underscores the fact that it it's a human story and that's why it works and that there is plenty of terrifying horror material there's some really terrific writing for the brass section which is incredibly frightening it reminds me a lot of um what elliot goldenthal would have done with films like alien 3 i'm sure that that was an inspiration it's it's a it's a really really good soundtrack are you familiar with it? Yes, but it's been absolutely ages since I've watched The Descent. But I do, I do vaguely remember this one. I haven't had a chance to go back and listen to it. I must confess, but it's uh, I, I, I do remember enjoying the film, and I do remember thinking it was good because I, I, David Julian's a name that, even though he, like you say, he sort of dropped off the radar, his name stuck with me. So when you mentioned The Descent, I was like, oh yes, David Julian. But then, so yeah, that's a good, that's a good one to kick off with. I've gone for one as well, which is for my number five, which is maybe is lower budget than some of the bigger ones. You know, we might be talking about, and with a, another composer who hasn't really made a massive dent since a film called Monsters, scored by a guy called John Hopkins, and this was the film that put Gareth Edwards on the map, and led to him getting the 2014 Godzilla reboot in Hollywood, and it's uh, it's a really good it's a really good film that he he made really sort of lo-fi i think on like a ho- he made the special effects on his home laptop and it's about this uh this this man and a woman who go into like a um a peacekeeping zone where these giants these giants sort of lovecraftian monsters are have sort of taken over and it, it's a film that doesn't quite go in the direction you think it will actually but and and the and the score is really beautiful and ethereal and you know, melodic without being thunderous. There are points of real tension where Hopkins really does draw out 
a lot of the the strings and things. But there are equally it it reminded me of um, Christopher Spellman's score for the Lost City of Z actually, which came afterwards. But that almost felt like a bit of a nod to Monsters. Not that I necessarily think it is, but they that's both a really interesting sit. comparison. Actually, yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from there. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, I love both of those scores. And it's that kind of the kind of scores that can sort of wash over you a little bit, and you wouldn't. It sort of feels a bit incongruous for a monster movie, but but then monsters isn't isn't a monster movie in the sense you might think it is. So it's one that's always stuck with me, and I I I played it a bit of it recently um, in advance of this, and I I I just think it's beautiful. Have you listened to this, Sean? Before, do you remember monsters? I do remember Monsters. I remember the music as it played in the film. And like you said, the movie inverts our expectations of what the monsters are, don't they? Basically, the creatures in the movie are the new normality and it's the humans that are the aberration. And I remember the score being very, very... It captures that sense of the fact that everything is flipped. The the score's got a very ethereal kind of dreamy quality to it. The world has turned upside down. Um, The beasts are like the new normal. And then there's that procreation scene. I mean, that's the most famous scene in the film isn't it and that's the bit that everyone remembers which it's staged so beautifully and i remember the music being very powerful in that scene there's there is a kind of like almost romantic quality to it there's a sense of awe as well i mean given how micro budget it was i can't imagine they must have had a lot of music a lot of money for the music which is interesting because john hopkins is uh, actually in fairness he's quite um a big figure in electronic music so he started playing keyboard for Imogen Heap, and then he's been producing or involved with albums from people like Coldplay, Brian Eno, David Holmes, that kind of thing. He's won Ivan Novello Awards, you know, and so he's he's quite a big fish in, in that sense, even before Monsters came along, but he's not really necessarily gone on and done a lot of, I think, film score music since. So it's um, he did uh, The Lovely Bones, which was the Peter Jackson film that followed up after lord of the rings his lord of the rings trilogy but he's not really done much else so it's 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 a shame actually again it's one of you you get these composers every now and then don't you, you do these one or two of these really great scores and then they don't seem to do much else because they've got their fingers in all these other pies the one i always think of with that is daft punk with tron legacy which i mm. actually i think came out around the same time as monsters didn't yeah. it and and you know daft punk obviously not known for film scoring they came along and did that albeit with a lot of help from joseph kaczynski the orchestrator who apparently was the one that he really he was the one who apparently really put the stamp on it and really brought it together that's a magnificent score and i think wow you know what i wouldn't give for those guys to do another score along those lines again <laughs> yeah yeah for sure absolutely so it'd be nice if if hopkins ever came out and did another one uh, but that this is a this is a real favourite of mine. So that's that's my number five. What what are you going for for your number four, Sean? I'm completely switching things up in terms of tone. I'm going for Gremlins by Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> which just, doesn't, doesn't that just make you grin? You just have to say yeah. the word Gremlins, don't you? And, and Jerry Goldsmith. Both those things make me smile a lot because as we've well established throughout this podcast, he is my favourite film composer of all time. And no. No, yeah, I'm going to have to talk <laughs> really? about that someday. <laughs> <laughs> I am such a Goldsmith bore, and I think scores like Gremlins <laughs> prove why. I mean, Goldsmith was famous for incredibly thunderous, complicated sci-fi action horror scores. Think of things like Star Trek The Motion Picture, Alien... Uh, the Omen, Total Recall, things like that. But he and one of the longest-standing collaborations he formed was with director Joe Dante, who doesn't make 
films like that. He makes incredibly wacky, satirical uh, horror comedies that are normally set in suburbia and which normally then um, implode suburbia, both figuratively and literally with a great amount of like dark humour. And you wouldn't think that Goldsmith and him would have made great collaborators, but they did. Dante drew out a lot of Goldsmith's uh, funnier side because I think he just basically went to Jerry Goldsmith and said, look, the concept of, of each of these movies is completely insane. Therefore, I'm encouraging you as a composer to really dip into your bag of tricks and do something very, very creative and unusual from what you've done before. I mean, they worked together on like Inner Space, uh, The Burbs, Small Soldiers, Explorers, you know, just and lots of scores that mix electronics with the orchestra, which Jerry Goldsmith did magnificently well. I mean, he, as far as I'm concerned, he did that better than any other composer. That mixture of the... Um, the synthetic with the organic and the way the two play off each other and gremlins is an interesting case because i think that although gremlins 2 which came along in 1990 has a kind of more sophisticated mixture of um uh, orchestra and electronics because that's the stage that's where goldsmith got to in that in that stage in his career because that year he also did total recall which is a masterpiece it gremlins the first one which came along in 1984 which is that's generally seen as goldsmith's like electronic period he was doing a lot of scores that actually ditched the orchestra entirely and just focused a lot on electronics the the the, the synthetics in the first gremlins are much harsher and they're much sort of more of their time sort of early to mid 80s than may than they maybe were in the sequel but it's it's just it's just brilliant it's just it's just such a, a wacky score like the, the sort of different he throws in like cat yowls and all manner of like weird sound effects and other stuff and the gremlin rag uh which just basically sounds like i don't know like a, a synthesized christmas carol gone to hell <laughs> it's just really um it, it, it's wonderful and that's a really famous that's that's one of goldsmith's most famous and enduring themes and it just gets the mischief of the film so brilliantly well as indeed does all the rest of the incidental music and then of course you've got gizmo's theme which is just beautifully endearing and unbelievably sweet and just again plays into that the, the gold the jerry goldsmith's philosophy was you you don't score the action you score the emotion you know the job of a film composer is not to make something that is already obvious more obvious you get underneath the skin of the movie and you think right what is this trying to communicate to the audience and how can i further do that with music and i think gremlins is just one of his most eccentric and enjoyable examples of that yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. it's it's a quirky one it's a quirky one that is is different and that's that's what i like about the monster movie sort of label for this because you we can we can go down certain different paths it, you know and it, and it still applies you know it still does apply in in depending on what your term of monster is so yeah that's a good one and we'll be coming back to jerry soon in the next few podcasts we're going to be starting some jerry goldsmith countdown so you never know gremlins might might yet reappear who knows we might be talking about it again <laughs> watch we'll this see. space watch this space my number four then is what is the only one of our choices that we overlapped on and I suppose it's appropriate given this podcast. But my number four and your number three, we might as well talk about it together, is the 2014 Godzilla by Alexandre Desplat, which is obviously the, the predecessor. The Godzilla King of the Monsters is technically a sequel to Godzilla 2014. And they they aren't scored by the same person, obviously. This one, I, I listened back to this before 
we recorded and before I listened actually to King of the Monsters separately after I'd seen the film and I don't know about you but and you might you might disagree with this but to me this doesn't sound like a traditional Desplat score in that it feels a little bit more you can hear some of the you know the, the traditional sort of things he always, he often does in albums but is this a weird choice for him to score really it was it was interesting because I mean when Godzilla came out, he had done the last two Harry Potter scores. So I suppose in that sense, there was a kind of precedent for him doing big blockbusters. He'd also done The Golden Compass as well. So it wasn't entirely unusual, but it's the kind of movie that it is. I mean, Alexandre Desplat normally ends up getting attached to incredibly like, classy, like thought-provoking dramas. And yeah, I mean, I remember when the news came in that he was doing it, I was like, wow, I was like, Desplat getting the chance to like let rip but not not let rip in a sort of fancy sense a la the golden compass or harry potter because the the conventions of a monster movie score are very very different from the conventions of a harry potter score which is very often about enchantment and whimsy and magic although obviously the last two films in that in the potter series were quite dark but the monster movie score requires a different set of conventions and yeah the opportunity for him to properly let rip with i think he described it he at the time I remember reading an interview with him where he described the score as fortissimo, like literally non-stop fortissimo, lots of brass <laughs> and drums, and mm. that is exactly. I mean, you, I mean, you've heard it. I mean, yeah. that is exactly what it is. Yeah, it's it's just it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a ride in a different way. And we'll, obviously, we can talk about King of the Monsters very soon, but it feels different in the sense that I think it does try and capture some of that what's the best way to describe it? Whimsy's not the right word, but more of a, perhaps a, a sense of traditional movie magic, maybe even edging a bit closer to sort of golden age sort of scores than the Bear McCreary goes for the much more Giacchino style of just pure awe and terror. Whereas with, I think with Desplat, it's more of an adventure sort of rambunctious roller coaster ride. And I think that was an interesting way of doing it. I didn't quite get that same level of, you know, sort of grandness necessarily from Desplat's score as I did then from the sequels. I have to say, I think Desplat's score is, I think it's absolutely magnificent. I mean, there's a reason why I've included it. it. It's what I love about it is just how uncompromisingly dark and moody it is. And there is a theme in it. There's the central Godzilla theme, which is incredibly imposing and powerful. That plays over the opening credits, uh, you know, with the redacted text like disappearing. And that sets the tone brilliantly. I remember seeing it in the cinema thinking, wow, this is a contemporary blockbuster monster movie that's actually got a theme. You know, it's actually got a theme and the theme is actually being allowed to play out in its entirety during the opening credits. That's not not necessarily a guaranteed thing nowadays. But the the tone of of the writing, I mean, Desplar is one of the great modern day film composers. It goes without saying that his orchestral writing is incredibly sophisticated. But the the, the use of the brass in this was so sort of thunderously powerful and it reminded me a lot of again there's I'm going to draw comparison with Elliot Goldenthal I mean it shows what what an influence Elliot Goldenthal has there were lots lots of sections in this was like flipping heck I could, I could be listening to the tone of it reminds me of something like Final Fantasy or Interview with a Vampire and just the the mixture of 
the horns like you get you have like the sort of trilling horns which are very like golden thought-esque and they, indeed they're used in bear mccreary's score as well that's always a really really effective device for communicating something utterly monstrous and overwhelmingly big but also there are them in the use of the taiko drums to connect it back to what akira if akube did in the 1954 that was a lovely touch it does i think what he's what Desplat was doing was very very consciously aping the kind of time signatures and meters and instrumental tones of the early Godzilla movie uh, the first one and I think he did a tremendous job I think it's an in, it's an enormously exciting and, and brilliant score and then there, there are choral sections in it as well just just it's juiced with just enough choir to just give that sense of awe and you think of the, the Golden Gate Bridge um, scene well I think most of that music wasn't actually used in that scene but on the album the use of the choir which reminds me a lot of maybe what John Williams did with Jurassic Park just just enough choir in it yeah I, I think I think it's the I think it's a, it's one of my favorite blockbuster scores of the last 20 years without a doubt I think you've articulated it better there in that that's that's kind of I think what I was trying to get at in that it's it's a different kind of you know awe and grandeur that he puts across and it is really com- complex and, and interesting what he does and it just shows really that he he can he can move into so many different genres you know he can he can move into so many different areas and really make something impressive you know and really tap into something so it's 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 great it is really good i mean that's the thing much as you know the the the, the gareth edwards godzilla was was a good film but it wasn't beloved and you know you can definitely say the same i think about um this this sequel but those scores are you know, top notch. Both of them, you know, are absolutely top notch. So it's great that we're getting, even for films that don't necessarily blow you away, we're getting really great scores that do. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I think you've, not that I want to jump ahead, but what you've just said there articulates my overall thoughts on King of the Monsters as a cinematic entity and as a soundtrack. But obviously, what I mean, you yeah. know, <laughs> won't, won't get teaser. Yet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> teaser exactly. for a very, very imminent discussion. Okay, well, we'll finish this with my my number three, which is the Michael Giacchino final outro, I think eight to ten minute um, piece, Raw, on the score to Clo- on the soundtrack to Cloverfield. Now, this, in a way, I was almost tempted to put Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom in with this because I feel like Raw is almost like his audition tape for Fallen Kingdom because they are there's a lot of similarity for me between what he does in both of those. But obviously, Jurassic Park is maybe more of a dinosaur kind of film. I suppose it is a monster movie. I suppose they are monster movies. Um, so I could have got away with it, but Cloverfield definitely is. Cloverfield is a version, is a take on sort of a Godzilla kind of, you know, found footage idea. You know, very much inspired by the Godzilla movies, but it doesn't have a conventional score, obviously. And it's only at the end of the movie we get this great um, fanfare, this great final, you know, piece roar, which over the credits, which is just one of the. I think in a, in, a, in an absolute in a career littered with magic. I think is one of Michael Giacchino's best pieces of work because it it's such a wonderful piece that builds from this, this very very small melodic opening to this gigantic roaring you know drums strings everything by the end. That's why it's called raw because it practically just booms out at you by the end of those credits. And in, I've I've just I've loved it for years, and I think it's. And like I say, I think he took a lot of those sort of ideas and, and built an entire score for Fallen Kingdom around that. Hence why Fallen Kingdom is one of the best scores in recent years for me. So it's a, I think it's a 
great piece of monster movie music. It is, isn't it? Because obviously, the net, like you say, the nature of the film denies Giacchino the chance to write a, a score. But I like to think that producer J.J. Abrams, who of course had worked with Giacchino on um, Lost and Alias and Mission Impossible 3 by that point, threw him a bone and said, look, Michael, you know, you, you weren't able to write a score for the movie. Do you just want to basically write an end credit suite that sums up the, the sort of might of uh, a, a classic kaiju movie a la you know what akira fukube did with the first godzilla movie and you know uh, having interviewed michael chikino knowing how enthusiastic is he probably went yep <laughs> you yeah, know eight, yeah. eight minutes of pure musical wonderment yeah with, with, <laughs> with, a, with a soprano vocal and a massive orchestra yeah it's uh it's it, do it, me. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and yeah. He's, he's a fantastic choice to do that and i think i mean it's interesting isn't it because like you say a lot of what cloverfield does is it embraces the conventions of those movies yet it also subverts them as well because it's the idea of a monster movie told from the ground up from found footage so and yet the the tone of that music at the end does very much feel like it it might belong in another movie but it doesn't matter because it's the end credits i mean it just sums up the emotional experience of what you've just watched and it, and it sums up the, the the sheer overwhelming bulk of of the monster that goes on the rampage in in Manhattan. So yeah, I think I think it's a, it's a great choice. I need to go back and listen to this again. Yeah, I, I I put it on every now and then to remind myself. I mean, I'm a big fan of Cloverfield anyway. So you know, if I if I do watch the film, it's always it's always one I look forward to at the end. It's a nice little treat. It's like the cherry on the cake, really. That that piece. Okay, so that's our first set of choices for our top five monster movies each we will be coming back to this at the end of the podcast but now we're going to get into the meat of things and discuss bear mccreary's godzilla king of the monsters godzilla So Bear, there's clearly a a really rich Godzilla heritage, not just in terms of the films, but also the scores, which started with Akira Ifukube in 1954. How did you work with director Michael Dougherty to determine the themes and the sound of the music? Well, that's a great question. And um, I'm glad you're including Michael in the question because it really was a collaborative experience. The first thing that I started thinking about when I was hired on Godzilla King of the Monsters was what is the thematic material going to be? We're introducing three new monsters to the uh, to the to the American franchise. And in Michael, the film has a Godzilla expert. I even think of Michael less as like a as a as a as a director and almost like a like a religious figure, like a priest. Like you would go to a priest and say, in the Bible, what is what do they say about this? And a priest would be able to say, oh, in my knowledge, I know this. And in this past, with Michael, it's Godzilla, man. I can say, Michael, like for Ghidorah, like what 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 are the themes that people really drew from? And like. What 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 do people expect with Mothra and, and and Rodan and he he knew all this stuff, and it was a great experience because I have seen a number of the old films, um, but it was not uh, I was not as versed in it as he was. I mean, the, uh, no one is. So the first thing we set out to do is figure out what our thematic material was going to be, and it was a it was a big juggling act um, because what my goal was setting out 
I wanted to I wanted to write a score that had a very modern sound. I did not want it to feel like a throwback score in any way. I wanted it to have my own voice and my own personality, which is sort of inevitable. I don't think I can shut that off. But I also wanted something that referenced the work of the older films, in particular Ifukube, who created music that I think should be up there when people talk about the great themes of cinema, the great franchise themes. When you talk about Star Wars, Star Trek, James Bond, Godzilla predates all of them, okay? Like, if you had to say what is the longest-running cinematic theme that has been in a franchise, I think it's Godzilla. So I think that commands respect. And it commands an acknowledgement. And for whatever reason, we've had two American Godzilla films that didn't use any old themes. So Michael and I wanted to fix that. I mean, we were sort of amazed that it hadn't happened. And further amazed that no one had used the Blue Oyster Cult Godzilla song. So these were all things that we talked about. And ultimately landed on kind of a a 50-50 split in terms of new and classic material. For Godzilla, for Mothra, I'm using the old themes. And and I'm not just using them as a cameo. They're the theme. I mean, I, I, I didn't want it to be just something that was reserved for one special moment. It's as if I wrote that theme, that's where I would use it. For Ghidorah and Rodan, I ended up writing original themes, mostly just because of the sort of shape of where those themes fit. I needed music that was that was done in a certain way. Plus, I just had this idea for Ghidorah that I thought was super cool. So uh, I just had to run with it. I mean, um, uh, I, was, I was really, really excited about uh, the Ghidorah theme. And then I wrote a theme for the human characters. I wrote a theme for Monarch. And uh, so I ended up with, you know, six or seven primary themes that I juggled throughout the film. And, and I think... I mean, we'll see what fans think, but I think that the score that has resulted is um, is everything that I hoped it would be. It it sounds like a score from 2019. It has some of my aesthetic and personality in there. And I think that the original themes, the Godzilla theme, the Mothra theme, and yes, even the Blue Oyster Cult song, are used in a manner that shows truly how much I love and respect them and uh, and placed very prominently. So I'm excited to see what fans think, but I'm really proud of it. You know, it was an incredible opportunity for me to give back to uh, one of cinema's longest lasting musical legacies. For me, it's all summed up in the track that you released recently called Old Rivals. It's one of the most striking bits of film music I've heard in a long time. There's a massive amount of warring elements that come together, including the vocals from System of a Down's Serge Tankian, Tycho drums, aspects of heavy metal and the choir. How did all that come together? It is an insane mixture. I'm not going to lie. Well, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, a big shout out to uh, Greg Hayes, who mixed my score, and Jason LaRocca, who mixed and co-produced the Blue Oyster Cult song, because they really helped me literally fit all these things together. But even conceptually, a lot of it started with um, the idea that I wanted the score to acknowledge 
Japan. I mean, it's it's a love letter to Japanese cinema. That's what the movie is. That's what Michael is making. Uh, Michael Doherty. So for Ghidorah's theme, which I already hinted at, I really like. But, uh, you know, it's it's Japanese Buddhist monks that are chanting. They're chanting in groups of three that are grouped in groups of three. So it is a, it is a, it is Japanese monks chanting what I, what I called like the prayer to the number three. It's just the number three, like in these fractal shapes. Uh, everything about Ghidorah's theme is in, is in threes. And, uh, and you hear that in the track that was released, Old Rivals. It's toward the end. It's this really spooky, cool, um, color. Um, and there's even a, there's even a, 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 a heavy brass thematic element that's added on top of that. So, I mean, even Ghidorah's theme has multiple layers. Even Godzilla's theme has multiple layers. Because in addition to the Ifukube uh, components, I also have these chanting Japanese taiko drummers doing all their uh, kakegoa, the, the, the vocalizations. So it was a huge task taking all of these elements and trying to fit them together in a meaningful way. And it, it just, it was painstaking and took forever. I'm not going to lie. I mean, but you got to remember, I am trying to make music for the biggest characters that exist in movies, speaking literally. The sound design, it's massive. I mean, everything about this, everything about this is massive. So I really needed to make something that was detailed and complex to try to build a structure that, um, that supports it. So obviously, this is the uh, the big the big movie of the moment, the uh, sequel to Godzilla 2014, directed by Michael Doherty um, and scored by Bear McCree, which obviously is most people know the story of Godzilla. You know, ancient monster reawakened through atomic testing, rises up, and you know stomps about the world while the military flail around, and obviously, importantly. <laughs> That's the, a brilliant description. <laughs> they do, don't they? They flail around going, oh my God. Yeah. And then importantly, the message of the movie is Godzilla is actually the good guy because all you dastardly humans are the baddies with all your atomic weapons. So, you know, don't don't think of this big giant mutant thing trashing everything as the bad guy. And obviously <laughs> in this film, in this film, and you know, Darity's film is not subtle about that at all. And this film is all about not just Godzilla rising, but the other monsters... King Ghidorah, Mothra, Rodan, all of these big guys from all of the Toho Studios movies that have been around for nearly 70 years appearing as well for the first time. You know, we've had two previous Godzilla movies. We've had the 1998 Roland Emmerich disaster. Uh, I, t- I-, I label that a disaster movie, but not for the reasons you might think. Um, <laughs> it's just a then, disaster. <laughs> just a disaster. And then the uh, 2014 Godzilla movie, which was which was a good it was a good way of doing it. You know, it was a solid film. And then you've got this one, which really opens it up, and it's all about the Lovecraftian sense of scale and horror, and these gigantic monsters smacking down each other with a massive Hollywood budget, um, with a few humans noodling around in the middle. But what behind that you have 
Bear McCreary's score, which has been much anticipated because Bear McCreary's like been growing and growing in in influence and stature for for some years now. He's already done well this year with Happy Death Day to You, which we both really liked. I remember, and I think I think he's done a great job here, Sean. So what what do you what are you what, what's your take on McCreary's King of the Monsters? I think it's a tremendous score. Actually, it might be my favourite score of the year so far. However, it's a complicated case when it comes to hearing the score in the context of the movie itself. And I think you, you, you and me, I think, both agreed on this, along with um, uh, Amon uh, Warman, with whom we chatted about Avengers Endgame a, a few weeks ago, because we had a little conversation online about this. I mean, the movie has not got, but the movie has not gone down well critically. Let's be honest, and it's not all that hard to see why. I think the the movie is tackled with a great deal of zeal and enthusiasm, if absolutely no thought for coherency or storytelling or character development whatsoever. It literally it makes no sense, and I and I know it's a Godzilla movie, and I know I, I'm I'll be the first person to admit I'm not I'm not an expert on the Toho Studios Godzilla mythology I know it's gone through like various eras you know it's been it's been it's even been rebooted within the Japanese context and now we're getting this new monster verse which is obviously you know Godzilla Kong Skull Island and now King of the Monsters no one comes to a Godzilla movie for a searing indictment of the human condition but obviously <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what you want is bit is big monsters you want spectacle but also crucially in the 1954 Godzilla movie it it, it wasn't just about the spectacle, although it's, it still stands up spectacularly now. That was, it, there was a very, very sobering anti-nuclear message in the first Godzilla movie. It wasn't just about a guy in a rubber suit sort of tr- trashing cities, which in a way that was revolutionary for the time. It was about what, what are the, what, why has this happened? What are the consequences of this? The thing is, in, in this new movie... I think almost as a direct rebuke to criticism of the Gareth Edwards movie, which I think was very flawed. I don't think that was a, a particularly coherent or great film either, but clearly as a rebuke to criticisms of that original, that earlier movie, which was there wasn't enough action in it. Like, you know, every time it looked like we were going to have a big monster fight, it would cut away. Clearly, it, Warner Brothers have just looked seemingly thrown $200 million at the project and, and gone, right, we want stuff. We just want, you know, strobe-laden apocalyptic monster on monster stuff and i came out of it thinking well certainly yeah you you can't deny that there is a spectacle to spare right from the very very beginning but it, the thing is it, what is spectacle if you don't care about it and, and i didn't care I, I didn't care and i didn't understand what was going on and just the, it always seems like a weird thing to say like the geographical space between the characters is very very bizarre. I mean, you know, in the, in the five years since the Gareth Edwards Godzilla movies, so we've managed to develop sp- not not spaceships, but we've managed to develop these kind of like stealth bomber things that can take people from America to China to Antarctica and back again within a few seconds of screen time. <laughs> and then within that, certain characters who are on different sides of the world will cross paths for dramatic purposes. Like, no, 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 I'm not buying that. I just, I just don't. That seems like a very weird thing to criticise the movie for, but because. These films only work if the human context is believable. You ground something in a human context and that further contextualises the monster spectacle because obviously this is about seeing this this incredible battle from the ground level a la Cloverfield, although without the fan footage. And if you, if you fudge the human interaction and you fudge the dialogue, even, with, even as I accept that you know, these humans don't have to be particularly deep, then the problem is there is an emotional vacuum 
in the movie. So that that's my thoughts on on the film. I didn't come out of it particularly angry or hating it, but I came out of it feeling you know pretty cold, as I did with the Gareth Edwards one. To be fair, uh, although for different reasons, the 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 score for me is is a complicated case in at least in the movie not not in terms of the music itself i think the music is magnificent it's absolutely brilliant and i think this is an instance you you nailed it earlier when you said that the great thing about these movies is they act as a canvas on which these fantastic composers like bear mccreary and alexander desplat can paint and i think that i'm glad this movie exists because it really lets bear mccreary let rip in an absolutely spectacular fashion and the um the, the complexity of, of the score is very very impressive at least when you listen to it on its own terms away from the incredibly noisy nature of the movie because when i was watching the movie i was thinking this is so insistent on being as noisy and kind of i you know it's almost like epilepsy inducing <laughs> that all the visuals and the sound kind of coagulated together into this one incredibly like kind of blurred mixture and i i find it quite hard within the sound design to maybe kind of pay attention to the music as as heard in in the movie um there were some exceptions to that i thought that in in the movie itself mothra's theme stood out really really well i love uh, and also in the movie the music for Rodan's reveal was really really good and that's I think that might be my favorite track on the album actually the bongos and choral chanting for Rodan with with the time signature changes is just enormously exciting that worked really well in the film there were bits and pieces of music that worked very well in the film um but I just think that in the rush to make it as sort of overstuffed and noisy and just as big as possible i kind of think that the 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 mix the mixing of the sound and the music in the movie for me kind of left a lot to be desired and i didn't have that criticism of the gareth edwards one i thought the music and the sound were mixed brilliantly in that one but when it comes to barry cruz score on its own terms i mean wow (laughs) it's just um i mean I've, i've spoken a lot i mean what are your what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I agree with pretty much everything you've said, to be honest. I mean, I, I think the there's been a lot of back and forth. You know, I wrote a little bit about Godzilla, and the point I made was that, you know, you've had a lot of very negative, critical reviews about this film. And I think I think you're absolutely right from the perspective of... And I, like you, I don't have any emotional connection or knowledge, particularly, of the Godzilla history mythology. I've seen the 1954 film, I've seen the two Hollywood films, and that's it, and the new one. So I don't really, I don't have any investment in it at all. So I'm going to, I'm approaching this as you are in many ways, from a different vantage point to people who've spent. You know, one of my best friends is a massive, massive Godzilla fan, and he will he will be going to watch King of the Monsters with a storehouse of knowledge and you know investment, and he will get he will see a very different film to us, and all those people will go and see a very different film to us. They will go and see what they've wanted and I think what this does deliver on which is the the sheer volume of monsters and fights and you know spectacle like that I think there are times it looks absolutely incredible I think there are certain shots that really capture the sort of dark Lovecraftian majesty of these monsters and I think you know there were points I was thinking wow that's an amazing shot that's fantastic but it's not it's not enough it wasn't enough for me to really feel like I'd enjoyed it you know, there were points I was really bored. There were points where, especially with the, whenever the monsters weren't on screen, I, w- I just 
was I could have had a sleep, I could have had sleep <laughs> which, yeah. which is quite a lot of the well, movie actually where they're well, not exactly. on the screen <laughs> exactly it's, it's, it's less than in the, the 2014 film which I did enjoy more even though the characterisation wasn't great in that I prefer, my pref- I prefer my monster movies where it's not about the monsters smacking each other down I prefer it when you know I always remember from the 2014 film where you first saw Godzilla I think he was walking over an airport and you see the, the plane like, tiny against his one foot and you slowly start you slowly start to see the sheer size of him and I was like Christ on, on like an IMAX screen you know and, and Gareth Edwards made you wait for that and he didn't overload you with Godzilla and I, I kind of prefer my monster movies a bit more like that than this where it is the end the last half hour is just a headache inducing thunderous you know it's, it's, it's a Transformers movie really by the end it's just they happen to not be robots they're happening to be you know so I was a bit more like oh okay by the end fine I get it now I get the idea you know so I think you've got to, the way to look at this is we're going to get a different experience to people who either love all that kind of spectacle and aren't particularly bothered about characterization and drama. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who go to films just for the monsters. And a lot of people I've spoken to actually online have said, oh, man, forget it. It's a monster movie. We're not going for drama. We're not going for that. And I think I don't really agree with that. But people are entitled to their own opinions and how they view things, obviously. I need a bit more, to be honest, even in a monster movie. But... This is getting away from the music. The music is, I think, really fitting for for the film. You know, Bear McCreary really does unleash this awesome, powerful soundscape. I think, like you say, it's lost in the film. You know, there were, there were points I was craning almost my ears to try and listen to this and try and pick out things. And I just, all I could hear was... <laughs> Like, you know, a thunderous... God, you're up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And I was a bit like, oh, for goodness sake, just just turn the, the volume down a bit so we can hear this music. So I was disappointed in that, but then when I got out and I listened to it on Spotify, I was I was immediately captured by, that, by the central theme that runs through this film, which is this great melody, this great motif. And I, I felt like it was Bear McCreary really, like you say, letting loose. It was him essentially doing a sort of... Michael Giacchino kind of thing. He, he was bring, he, for me. This is the this is the score that really elevates him up towards that level. Really puts him on a par with you. Could, you could start giving Bear McCreary the big the big films. You could start giving him the Star Treks, the Star Wars. For me, now I, th- I think he's reached that point where he could do it. And he could I, do it I'm really well. so glad you said that because I thought after listening to this score in isolation away from the film, I thought seriously give him a Star Wars movie now. I yeah. mean, you know, this, yeah. it's because this, this is because the, the King of the Monsters score is sublime, uh, and I think that. I mean, you mentioned the one theme there. I mean, I count at least six themes in in this Ooh, yeah. score. Mm. I mean, you've got the Mothra is one as well. You've got that lovely Mothra yeah. song at the end, which is and, and I thought actually that Mothra was one of the aspects of the film that was brought across very very well, largely because of the music, because you have this lovely choral angelic beauty which sits in very sharp contrast to the more brutal nature of the music for the other monsters. So that was an interesting contextual choice and it, and it works uh, but clearly you've got the adaptation of uh, Ifakube's original Godzilla theme because as we'll hear in the uh, interview with Bear he kind of hit on the fundamental question which is why have none of the American Godzilla movies the Hollywood Godzilla movies used Ifakube's theme because he said this is one of the this deserves to be held up there with Star Wars and Jurassic Park and Star Trek and he's like why hasn't it been used so he set out to fix that and I think he's done it brilliantly. I think that there is a really pleasing loyalty within the score to the mythology, the musical mythology of the 
Godzilla uh, um, music, and I think that plays. There's also an adaptation, like you said, Mothra's, Scott, Mothra's song. That's the that's uh, as I've gone back and done my research on this. That's an adaptation of Ifukube's original choral uh, vocal uh, Mothra theme. There's also the theme for Odan. There's the theme for King Ghidorah, which is in a meter of three, because to represent the fact that he's got three heads. All of these extraordinary musical nuances that come out in uh, when you listen to the score in isolation and it's it's a really good listening experience as well because very often the problem with blockbuster scores like this when you listen to them on their own is they become a bit of a bludgeoning experience they uh, halfway through you think god i've been hit by so much sort of symphonic action music that i'm starting to get a little bit of a headache and i'm starting to feel a little bit tired but the 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 way that this score is organized as a listening experience and it's long it's like over 90 minutes long it's really good. It takes you on a very, very um, well thought out dramatic journey between these incredibly thunderous orchestral set pieces in which everything is let loose to the more quiet, awe-inspiring moments that use the choir like, very, very well. There's there's the moment involving Godzilla's kingdom. I won't go into any more than that for fear of spoilers, but the, the, the choral work in that, which gives this real sense of like ancient mystique and majesty is really well done and that's what you need you need to play off different musical textures in order so that the listening experience is incredibly varied and again very little only bits of this come through in the movie itself listening to the score in its own terms i was thinking wow this is such an intelligent and sophisticated and overall enthusiastic way to tackle the project i mean every every time you hear the choir chanting the various names of the monsters i mean you hear them chanting godzilla the rodan points i mean i got a sense this was composed with bear having a massive massive smile on his face <laughs> and it's just, yeah it's yeah great. it's like it's like it's, it's it's like playing with your toys isn't it it's like yeah. playing with your orchestral toys and being aware that you know you've got like you say you've got a legacy you can tap into you've got a, a, a historic theme you can tap into you know, it's kind of like it, 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 it's 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 become a strange thing in that, you know, that you do have some of the best scores come out of some of the worst movies. And yeah. to be fair, I'm not I'm not saying that King of the Monsters is the worst movie of the year or anything like that. I really don't think that's true. I think there are definitely moments in it, and there are there's stuff of merit. You know, I think on a technical side, it looks really good. On a technical side, I think there's a lot to lot to like. I think to be honest, and I think it will really appeal to to fans of of monster movies and of Godzilla, but. I think it, it, it's it's hard to really look at it from a, a, the kind of critical vantage point you and I do, or and other critics do, that it's a really good film because I wouldn't say it is. And I think it, it, it's becoming a strange thing in that some of these some of these movies, you know, we mentioned Tron Legacy earlier, which is absolute dirge as a movie, but the the score is fantastic, and it, so it's just very telling how a composer can take the constituent elements of an idea of a, of a film. And they can often do something that is far more impressive, far more powerful than than what a screenwriter and a director and you know a, an actual team who put this on screen can do. And it's a strange, it's a strange thing. You would think that the great movies have great scores and the poor movies have terrible scores, but it really doesn't work out that way very often. And you know, not not all, or not always anyway. And it's a, it's a strange thing in cinema that that, that, is, that is a case. Well, well, yeah, um, I mean, we mentioned Jerry Goldsmith earlier. Jerry Goldsmith was the king of writing magnificent scores for terrible movies that frankly didn't, didn't deserve his input. Jerry Goldsmith did that, but because he got restless, see, he, he, he admitted himself, I get restless if I'm not working on a project. So very often he would sign on to a project, regardless of whether the script was a complete dog or not. 
he he would do it and um you know i'm i'm you know i'm I'm not suggesting that's what's happened here with with godzilla but i think what what's happened is that it's provided a canvas for bear to come up with um some really really impressive music i mean it's it's an interesting contrast with with the 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 desplat score which i think is um darker and mean it's it's kind of got it almost like it's an interesting thing to compare and contrast the two i think this the king of the monsters score you get a sense is being composed and conducted with one fist kind of pumping the air mm. and and the despair yeah. score was much more kind of like moody and like menacing i think we, we we touched on this earlier but i think the really impressive thing about this king of the monsters score is it's the first hollywood score to, to really acknowledge the heritage of the franchise the, the wider godzilla toho studios franchise i think that's really impressive and to mix that with the composer's own voice to balance those two things in a way that is coherent and listenable and again mixes all these different textures and instrumental nuances together i mean i mentioned that the, the rodan theme which you know starts off with the the bongos and the strings and then builds into the, co- the, the choir chanting Rodan is enormously impressive and in fact that was actually one of the scenes in the film where I thought the score was actually mixed very very well in, in the design when he lays waste to the city I believe it's in, it's in Mexico is it that was really well done and I think that I mean what a, lo- what a lovely thing it is for somebody like Bear McCreary who has worked on so such a variety of, of projects now going right way way back to Battlestar Galactica what how lovely it is to see him getting attached to a project like this that will clearly bring such a massive amount of exposure to his wonderful music and you, you can hear the influence is not just of Akira Fukube but I heard elements of like Jerry Goldsmith in here James Horner Alan Silvestri all the past masters and I think as as we'll hear in the in the interview he was he was wonderful to talk to you can hear the enthusiasm that he's got for this and i think he was playing off michael dowdy because he bear told me that michael dowdy is like the bible of godzilla and i do kind of think that maybe what's happened in the movie and i i'm with you i i, I didn't i didn't hate the movie there were there were a bit that like you said there were things in it that's impressive but i think that what's happened is that you know any kind of in the enthusiasm for the franchise heritage has kind of stomped over anything <laughs> that's kind of mm. logical or coherent yeah. but it's allowed for for me the best score of the year so far i, I love it yeah I, I i think it's definitely up there for me absolutely i'd have to, i'd have to i'd have to think about it but it will be it will be there in about i'd be surprised if it's not in my top 10 at the end of the year absolutely it's a cracker. So we've, we've been playing a bit of it. We're going to play a little bit more. Um, Godzilla King of the Monsters is now available from Water Tower Music. So make sure you pick that up. And uh, as, as we say, keep listening to uh, Sean's interview with Bear McCreary himself. One of your scores that I really like is Colossal, in which you scored a monster movie as if it were a melancholic drama. I found that a very intriguing approach. Are you likewise seeking out the humanity in Godzilla, King of the Monsters? That's a great question, and thank you for bringing up Colossal. 
I thought it was going to be my Godzilla score. <laughs> I really did. I mean, I gave it my all, man. Uh, yeah, it was a big kaiju movie. And what's funny too, right, because I've also done the couple of the Cloverfield movies that all of which had kind of kaiju-adjacent elements. So I really felt like that's going to be my spin on this genre. And then I got Godzilla and, and got to do it for real. Yes, the humanity in, in Colossal is is what was the driving force. Uh, it really was a dramatic human story that had kaiju elements. I applied that to Godzilla King of the Monsters in, in a slightly different way. I mean, I emphasized spectacle in my last uh, description of the score, but really what I was driving toward is character. And I think, I think it's worth mentioning just, just to be clear, like why you even have themes for four monsters, four themes. I mean, even that is worth commenting on. It's not a given that in 2019, when you do a big blockbuster movie with multiple characters, that every character has a theme that is used during their sequences. I mean, obviously in the superhero world, we've opted toward being very subtle about that. In the MonsterVerse, I was not subtle about it. I wanted four themes for four characters, and I wanted to use them very overtly. Why did I do that? Because they're characters. I wanted to find the humanity within each of these creatures. And and credit to Michael for crafting characters, not just monsters. Each of these I think I believe each of these monsters has a personality, has a motivation, has something they're fighting for. And that's all you need to provide music that underlines that. Uh, that character for the audience. So while I would hardly call the score intimate for most of its running time, there are several sequences that that truly are. And that's where using voices, which are some of my favorite instruments, was really helpful. You know, having those chanting Buddhist monks for Ghidorah, the taiko drummers for Godzilla, I have ethereal female choirs for Mothra. It allows a sense of humanity to pop through the mix, even during the biggest battle cues. So that was, um, that's where, that's where I was coming from. Would it be fair to say that across your remarkable spread of work, most of which we haven't covered, like your TV work on The Walking Dead, your film work on 10 Cloverfield Lane and your video game music for God of War that you're driven first and foremost by a love of character? That's a really good question. And I almost feel like an outside perspective is the better answer on that. Like you could answer that question better than, than I could. But uh, to take a stab at it, I mean, I, that is the one unifying thing about my work. I, 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 I pride myself on doing things that are completely different and, um, uh, you know, like today, on, on the day we're recording this, I've got The Professor and the Madman coming out, which is this beautiful chamber score written in the style of um, sort of romantic British composers. It's, it's very much my love letter to The Age of Innocence, going back to Elmer Bernstein. That comes out two weeks before Rim of the World, which is my adventurous kind of 1980s orchestral Homage to Jerry Goldsmith, Dave Grusin, John Williams. And that predates Godzilla, which then leads up to Child's Play. So it's like, 
I don't know what any of those scores have in common other than my brain and that each of them I try to dial into the character. And to me that that's 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 what film scoring is, that 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 connection between the characters on screen and the the music that somebody crafts for them. I mean when you think about Indiana Jones, he's a simple character, but the combination of those notes for with those images and that actor, it's magic, you know? And that's what inspired me when I was a kid, and, and it's in the hopes of creating anything even remotely like that again. That's what keeps me going. That That's what uh, keeps me doing what I'm doing. The full version of our interview with Bear McCreary may be found on Film Score Monthly online at fsmonlinemag.com. Please consider subscribing for more interviews, reviews, and all things film music. Okay, so we're going to finish things off by going back to our monster movie discussion. So we've got our top two choices now to just pick through. So, Sean, why don't you kick us off with your uh, number two choice then? Well, I've gone for the original King Kong from 1933 by Max Steiner, purely for the reason that this is the score that gave birth to the monster movie score. You can't have a list without this in it. Just the idea, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to underestimate how revolutionary this score was for the time. I and mean, obviously this is the early days of Hollywood. I mean, one could probably say that King Kong was the first monster movie in Hollywood. I mean, it probably was. Uh, certainly the first monster movie that was done with that level of sophistication in terms of its imagery. And I mean, the, Max Steiner's score was very, very um, important in the development of the Hollywood film score, particularly in the use of the, the very heavy like brass section to convey a creature of absolute monumental weight and bulk. That that's a, that's a musical convention that we now take for granted. I mean, when you see a blockbuster movie now and the uh, the harmonics of the orchestra tend to favour the brass section during the reveal of something huge you kind of think well okay that that kind of makes logical sense but you've got to think it was Max Steiner that that did that Um, he was one of the godfathers of uh, film music along with the likes of Alfred Newman uh, Bernard Herrmann uh, people like that Um, I mean Max Steiner was was a was a very interesting case because I mean he also scored Gone with the Wind which is it goes completely the other end of the of the scale you know you've got the Tara theme which is one of the great grandiose romantic themes of all time it's absolutely beautiful and yet you've got this which is I mean it I mean talk about setting a trend I mean it's such a a powerful score even now like so many decades on nearly a century on it hasn't lost any of its potency and you can hear its influence in Bear McCreary's score for King of the Monsters. You can hear its influence in what Alexander Desplat did with Godzilla. You can hear it in what James Newton Howard did with for the uh, Peter Jackson King Kong remake. I mean, I loved what James Newton Howard did with that. And yeah, I, I think it, it, it's, it's a logical, for me, it's, it's a logical um, inclusion. This is where it all started. Even if it hasn't topped my list, this is where all of these musical conventions started. I saw this film when I was a kid. I haven't seen it since. And I went back and I listened to the uh, the score re- uh, just recently and it, it's fantastic I mean it's fantastic my, my knowledge of, of this era of, of film scores is very, sorely lacking it's something I need to go back and really really concentrate on and do but so I can't I'm, I can't really 
talk about this in depth, but I, I loved what I heard. And you can really, you can just, you can just immediately see where all the, where so many people have been inspired by it. You know, it really, it's, it's incredible considering the, the age, 1933, you know, it's incredible to think this was, this was out there that early, you know, for this film. It's astonishing. I, I, I once I'd finished listening to it, I was thinking, oh man, I, I would love to w- see this perform with an orchestra actually watch this film with an orchestra because I think it would sound astonishing live. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, just to think to have been in the recording studio when he first came up with it, I mean, you think, wow, like what what the executives must have been thinking. Uh, and just in terms of how well, excuse me, it accompanies the um, the imagery, just the idea of, of Kong scaling um, the Empire State Building. You know, no one had, had seen anything like that. So clearly Max Steiner was tasked with inventing a new musical language really because the film was inventing a kind of new visual language therefore max steiner really had to step up and do the same with the music and uh, it it was um it was a watershed moment it, it, it was it was a benchmark moment it's it's a fa- fantastic fantastic score my number two is uh, from my year of my birth 1982 and i've gone for john carpenter's score for the thing good choice which 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 obviously has an interesting um, legacy because it was originally Ennio Morricone who was scoring the thing. And then that, and that soundtrack is now out there. That score is now out there, but it was rejected at the time. And then John Carpenter brought in his fame. Probably this is, it could well be his most famous score. I think the thing with the kind of dum, 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 dum. And then the way it builds that fantastic. I I, I can't think of many other films that have such a, a wonderful expression of, ominousness in music than that i think that is one of the greatest expressions of that in in film history just the way that it, that gets under your skin in in the in the way that that film does um that score and it, even though the film is really good anyway i kind of think it's one of those movies that's just immeasurably improved by that score oh absolutely and the film is a masterpiece it's one of the most terrifying films ever made i think it's john carpenter's best movie uh it, i think it tops halloween for me i mean it's, it's important to say that 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 opening that electronic pulse was actually it was actually morricone that was one of the pieces that morricone that was one, did right it, but okay. it, it's a complicated scenario because uh, yeah you're right lots of the music was thrown out of the movie which then weirdly a lot of it turned up in quentin tarantino's the hateful eight you know which is kind of kind of odd yeah because obviously that movie owed a debt to the thing in, in in a sense but yeah a lot a lot of morricone's more experimental material in the score which again you, this is the importance of listening to film scores in isolation because very often they very often they can take on lives of their own when heard away from the movie but lots lots of material was dumped and carpenter did did rescore certain sections of it with that kind of textural electronic like growl that you can hear in a lot of his other scores but there was some there was some Morricone material that did turn I mean I often think of the the scene that's so brilliantly scored when they bring back the mutated body from the Norwegian base and then they just reveal it and obviously Rob Bottin's prosthetics are just magnificently repulsive and horrible as as indeed they are throughout the rest of the movie but you get these kind of high high register strings that just kind of capture the kind of disgust and horror at what they're looking at and it's icy i mean the word the words used is icy isn't it which is appropriate given the landscape of the of the movie but just that scene in particular you got these high register strings that just really 
kind of it almost like gives you a sense that you are being invaded by a kind of uh, organism in a in a in a way um yeah. but yeah i mean it was interesting i think that jerry goldsmith was was john carpenter's original sc- uh, choice for this but he couldn't do it and then it went to ennio morricone and it obviously didn't turn out to be the smoothest collaboration in in the world but yeah you to go back to that the opening poll you're absolutely right i mean just how how dread in, how dread fueled is that like boom 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 it's it's boom, boom. Yeah. yeah it's faceless there's no there's nothing human in it which is exactly what's needed to convey the menace of the monsters i mean for my money it's one of the great movie monsters of all time if not the greatest i mean what how terrifying is it an enemy that you can't see until it's too late and an enemy that might also be my friend a family member or whatever that has completely assimilated somebody else i mean that's a really frightening concept and i think that's the reason why the thing works as a movie yeah definitely and it's been aped so often since you know since that you know and and i know ultimately the thing has its you know genesis in in some earlier science fiction and things like that but you know the way that film produced it and put it out there it's you know people have been copying that for the last 40 years really so it's yeah it's it's great and that that score is just unforgettable um one of the best what's your not i mean your number one is it feels in in some ways inevitable, really. I don't think you can have a list, actually. Much as I didn't include it, thinking about it, I don't think you can have a list of monster movies without your number one choice, Sean, can you really? Dum, dum. Yeah, there you go. I just need to start... Yeah, it is, of course, Jaws by John Williams. Yeah, I mean, you just need to start doing that, don't you? It's It's been so imitated and parodied over the years. And whenever something is parodied, or copied to such an extent, there is a very good reason why. It's because it's revolutionary. Mm, it, it, yeah. it, it set an extraordinary precedent, and that's the reason why people feel the need to either pay homage to it, or as in the opening sequence of, say, Airplane, like completely, <laughs> completely sort of use it in a comical <laughs> context. Yeah. John Williams had been scoring movies probably for the best part of maybe... 15 to 20 years prior to Jaws and he'd done a lot of very very celebrated um projects I mean he started as a jazz artist known as Johnny Williams you know throughout the 1960s but I would say it was probably Jaws that put him on the map I mean he'd done obviously the uh Owen Allen you know Poseidon Adventure Towering Inferno but it was Jaws that got him I believe his first score Oscar he had won an Oscar for Fiddler on the Roof some years earlier but it was Jaws that really announced him to the world and indeed announced his collaboration with Steven Spielberg. I mean, the famous story is that when Spielberg came to John Williams for the music, John Williams played those two notes on the piano and Spielberg said, you're kidding, right? That won't work. He's like, he thought it was a joke. And John Williams said, no, no, no. He's like, you need something that is incredibly primal and instinctive because you're not dealing with a human monster here. You're dealing with an animal that operates entirely by instinct. And John Williams said to Steven Spielberg, just wait, just wait and see what it sounds like with an entire orchestra. And you get that that chugging like double bass theme that that builds in sound. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people just think of it in terms of those opening two notes, didn't it? But that theme actually then develops in its concert arrangement into this very typically kind of sweeping like john williams-esque theme a lot of people seem to forget that i mean clearly the reason why the reason why it works i mean the the malfunctions that they had on on the set of the film the prop shot not working and then spielberg having to use that kind of subjective camera 
allowed John Williams' score to step up and become more of a character in the film than uh, that it might not have been had the shark actually worked. I mean, I always think that's a very interesting thing to think how both the score of Jaws and how the movie would have worked out had they actually used the prop shark to its entire in its entirety. It's it's just it's just one of those it's just one of those scores that is it, it's so hard to. To, it's it's just it's just brilliant. I mean, you know, it, it's it's I mean, I should I should have really had it on my list. Like I don't, I don't know why I didn't actually. To be honest, I think I was trying to sort of go for things that that I really that, that for films that I I'm, I'm maybe more connected to and and scores that I'm more connected to. But I think yeah, I, I, it's it's just fantastic. It's just fantastic all around, and it's still one of John Williams' best scores in in a in a, in, a, in, a, in an incredible career. I mean, I think um, the, the the other thing I did want to say was it, it's not it, it, a lot of people tend to think of Jaws in terms of that that main theme because that theme is so iconic and that's probably what got the score the Oscar because it works so it's so magnificently scary in the film. There is other material in the score as well which I think gets overlooked and I think this is the important thing. I think you've got the um, the sea shanty theme for Quint Robert Shaw's character, which is. You're whimsical. I mean, it's 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 it uses a lot of woodwinds, and it, and it's an interesting contrast to the the stark menace of the main theme. You've also got the the typically brilliant Williams set pieces. You've got like the, uh, the, there are various album releases of Jaws, which sort of change the track titles around. But there's one called um there's a track called the Great Shark Chase, which is when they intercept the shark for the first time, and you get that brilliant bit where. Um, Robert Shaw is standing on the prow of the boat and you get that that kind of brassy adventurous build up in John Williams' score as the camera comes flying around the boat and it's just it's brilliant. I mean it's set that the things like that set the benchmark for future Williams adventure scores like Star Wars and Indiana Jones. You can hear the genesis of so many other great John Williams scores in other genres in in this soundtrack and yeah, I, I mean, I, I said that King Kong was a was a watershed moment in in film score history. This this is another one of of those. John Williams, I, yeah, I can't say enough brilliant things about John Williams. I don't think mm. anyone can. No, no, absolutely. And you know, we will we will cover him more at some point on between the notes. And I'm almost certain George is going to crop up again. So we'll you know we will revisit this one day. Um, so yeah, my my number one to round us off is uh, another. It not 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 to any extent a you know a, 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 a watershed moment like some of these other scores, but I think one of the great scores of the eighties and one of the great monster movie scores, which is Alan Silvestri's Predator. Which I I mean I love Predator anyway. Predator's in the mate, a fantastic film, and I love this score. I think it's one of my favourites just in general, not just of the monster movie score uh, genre, but in general. And I think because what he does so well with this obviously predators set in the jungle arnold schwarzenegger and his team get picked off one by one by uh, the predator this alien um creature in the jungle is that he manages to create for me a brilliant sort of mashup of a stripped down combat sort of war movie score and a suspense thriller all in one and there are there are particular the way he uses drums to sort of a bit like it's sort of like the thing in a way but not electronic the way he sort of builds up a you know a kind of rhythmic dun, 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 dun. and then with fanfares with you know with all, all the big you know orchestral sort of stuff zipping around in it 
But at the same time, there are there's one particular track at the end. I think it's when Arnie is getting ready to take on the Predator and he's putting his warp. Oh, that that like scene that. is it, awesome, and the music is brilliant in that oh, scene. Yeah, it's fantastic, it, and the way it just builds, you know, with him as he's ready to go. I'm here, kill me, come on, kill me you know, now, do it, kill do me it now. now, I'm here, do it now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's great. It's it's just fantastic. I I can't. I, I love it. Love it. Love it to bits. I think I think it's one of the best scores ever. Ever. I, I can't say enough about it. I, I completely agree with you. As soon as you said Predator, I was just like grinning from ear to ear because it's one of my <laughs> favorite Alan Silvestri scores. It's one of my yeah. favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies as well. It's it's one of my favorite Arnie movies a lot because of the music. Uh, mm, it, yeah. The, the music yeah. is so important in in the movie in terms of establishing that jungly atmosphere. And it's, it's a claustrophobic movie, isn't it? It's incredibly scary, like the, particularly the first time you watch it. And the music, the Hans Vestry's brilliant music, enhances that sense of claustrophobia. And it also uses sort of, um, textures to suggest in the jungle as well. And the way you get that emerging, you get that emergent theme from the Predator on the strings, which is incredibly eerie and suggests something from another world, which then sits alongside the sort of the commandos theme the militaristic theme which you see play over the opening credits i mean it's a score that's got a thematic base it's got very very clearly defined musical ideas it's spotted brilliantly in the movie although again uh, like like some of the films we've talked about on this podcast a lot of the music was kind of truncated and moved around um by john mctin and although when you watch the film the score works fantastically well i mean it's very very it's a very coherent sort of um, sound mix in the movie which I think is very very laudable I mean the other members of the production need to take credit on that as well but yeah I mean particularly the last 25 minutes in which is pretty much devoid of dialogue really as mm, you get yeah, this kind of yeah. hearts of darkness style you know he, Arnie reverts yeah. back to like almost ancestral like caveman ways I mean what an opportunity for Alan Silvestri to build on that kind of back to the future style mm orchestral muscular dramatics and just it, the the music becomes the dialogue of the movie which is quite unusual for an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie because he's he's got such a strength of personality and this is one of the reasons why I like Predator a lot because in Predator he's actually playing he's facing off against a character that is actually stronger than he is yeah <laughs> which is yeah. A bit unusual Once. Um, mm. and the music gets that kind of tension it's like oh god is, is Arnie actually going to win this bout um mm, mm. and the use of the of the timpani and the tribal drums and the brass particularly during that final stretch of the, of the movie makes it scarier and it, it makes it more atmospheric yeah i, I think this is, is you've made a t- tremendous choice here yeah, I, I love this score to bits as well it's one of Alan Silvestri's greatest yeah although although maybe it would have been even greater if they had dropped a bit of the old um guitar from commando in there they, <laughs> the, 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 the saxophone then. <laughs> that that would have scared the predator off <laughs> yeah only just whips out a sax or whatever yeah yeah uh, that... <laughs> like, no anything but that anything but that yeah <laughs> So that's our um, 
that's a monster movie uh, top five each. So uh, lots of lots of homework there to go and listen to. I'm sure you've listened to a lot of those scores already, but there's a few you might not have done. So uh, do go and check those out, um, and do check out Godzilla: King of the Monsters definitely because it is it is a great film, a great score to a mediocre film really. So um, yeah, we hope you've enjoyed uh, our discussion about this and um, Sean's discussion with bear mccreary so well done on that one that's a, a great little coup to talk to him sure oh he was just so much fun that was one of the most entertaining composer interviews i mean you can hear it can't you, you can hear the enthusiasm yeah. i mean one of the things i love about doing interviews is when you know i i wind it up and then and then i just let it go and if you if i can just ask a basic question that leads to such fulsome eloquent and enthusiastic answers like that my job is done so i i love that and i love hearing a film composer talk with such passion about a project that they clearly care so deeply about it's 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 mm. wonderful yeah and i think you did, you did that really well with this one so yeah it's uh it's a treat so thanks for that so we'll be back soon for uh, uh in the next few weeks for uh, another uh, episode of between the notes talking um various new scores that are out there because it's blockbuster season now we've got quite a few big movies coming up with uh, scores so we'll see how they go um and see what we get out of them so Thanks for joining us for this. Let's get a final Godzilla in, Sean. Go on, while we've got the chance. Godzilla. Perfect. That's the best one yet, actually. <laughs> you know, I, I actually kind of nervously looked out of the window then as I said that. I was like, oh no, <laughs> is this something coming? <laughs> I was like, no, it isn't. <laughs> and uh, uh, hopefully Sean will be back with us unless he's stomped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, either way, we'll be back soon. So enjoy all the listening you're going to do, guys. And until next time, thanks for listening to the latest episode of Between the Notes. is produced and edited by Tony Black who hosts alongside Sean Wilson you can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22 you can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes on iTunes your podcast app of choice on Spotify Stitcher and on Spreaker where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network for more podcasts all about TV film books music and popular culture in general you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.